This podcast is sponsored by Speakerbox Media, where we hand-build podcasts just like this one to create online communities for brands like yours. If you'd like to learn more, head over to speakerboxmedia.com. So really what I see with the folks who have made their businesses work is the grit to innovate, courage to change that plan, the ability to stand up and say, hey, what I was doing the first time actually wasn't right, but I have the wisdom and the knowledge and the confidence and the resources to make it work and put wind back in the sails. Welcome to the B2B Growth Hacks podcast, the show that helps entrepreneurs like you unlock opportunities for growth in business. I'm your host, Sarah Smith, and this is B2B Growth Hacks, a podcast powered by Speakerbox Media. Hey guys, welcome back to B2B Growth Hacks. We are in our Innovator Die series, and today I've got a great guest on. Today we'll be speaking with David Pachter, the co-founder and executive chairman at Jump Crew and the author of Remote Leadership. David, welcome to B2B Growth Hacks. Thank you, Sarah. Wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. David, you have such an amazing story, and I'd love to just dive in and start with you telling our audience a little bit about your entrepreneurial and business journey and just some of the amazing things you've done. Sure. I think to understand my journey, it's best for me to go back before it was really a journey. It was more of a wander because I really (laughs) didn't know where I was going for a long time, Sarah. And I think I share this in common with a lot of entrepreneurs that didn't come up a traditional route go to a business school and come out with a solid business plan that they were going to follow because they had a lot of experience beforehand. I stumbled into my first venture coming out of college, not really knowing what I was going to do and not seeing opportunities that were career oriented that I want to jump into. I tried starting my own business when I was 22, 23 years old and uh, failed miserably in the first week. And if there was any one thing that I learned, it was how unprepared I was to be a business owner, to be a business operator. And it really kind of set me on a journey of just spending four or five years learning things and working for other people. Got it. And so how does transitioning throughout your kind of initial entrepreneurial journey, how did that transition to from I'm now working for somebody, I've learned a couple things, I feel like I've gotten enough info, and now I'm going to try this again? So I think it's really important to start that journey from some platform of success. I struggled with that for four or five years. I bounced from job to job, not sticking around long enough to actually level up and understand what it was that I didn't know that I needed to know to get to the next level. And it took me until I was in my very late 20s when I rebooted my career coming up through the sales channel to realize how much focus and discipline I really needed to have to sit my butt in the chair long enough to learn what I needed to know to be successful. And that was when I really had the confidence coming off a big win to go and start a business. What was the first business that you started? The first business I started that was successful was a staffing business, and it was leveraging off of work that I had done coming up through the sales channel in a staffing consulting business that had become very successful and had sold to a, uh, a national public company. Very cool. And then after that? So after that, I actually realized that there was more I needed to learn about product, about technology. And I worked for a series of fairly well-funded startups in the tech space learning again. And it took me about seven or eight years before I felt like I had an idea worthy of going out and taking the risks associated with being an entrepreneur, which I think many folks really overlook when they're thinking about doing it. 
And I really wanted to feel like I was ready in the right time and right place. And most importantly, had a partner that would be in it with me. Yeah, I love that. And you've hit on something that's, I think, very important to kind of dive in on, which is we all think we have a great idea. How do we know that we've gotten to the point of we have a viable product to take to the market? How do we have any type of certainty around that? I don't think we do, Sarah. Mm -hmm. I don't think we do. That's the great risk that we all take. And a lot of times in our own mind, it's not only a great idea, it's an original idea, which I realized many years ago is a great fallacy of hubris. But what we need is to have the time to let our ideas resonate, the time and the resources and the money, the personal time, the bandwidth to go out and do it the right way. And it's rare. It's so rare that that first idea becomes the idea that makes the business successful. It happens sometimes. So really what I see in the world around me with the folks who have made their businesses work is the grit to innovate, mm. the courage to change that plan and the ability to stand up and say, hey, what I was doing the first time actually wasn't right, but I have the wisdom and the knowledge and the confidence and the resources to tweak it small enough, frequent enough, big enough to make it work and to stick with it that way. And that to me makes the difference between the entrepreneurs who are starting businesses and they're going sideways and not getting back on track and the ones who really are able to put them back on the tracks and put wind back in the sails and make them work. Yeah, which essentially is that persistence to innovate. It's almost like this commitment to saying, I'm going to fail, but I'm going to innovate, grow, learn from XYZ and get back up so that I can create a business that can sustain time and the market and different challenges. Sarah, having done this a bunch of times, I am not the person who is out there espousing to other folks to do this, right? I am the other guy. Yeah. I am the guy that says, hey, if you can find a great company that's making stuff happen, that's creating entrepreneurial opportunities, and will give you the autonomy, the agency to develop your skills and to find your greatness, that to me is a much more attractive path right now, given what I'm seeing in the world. Oh, yeah. I mean, having been in it just for the few years I have, you know, and having friends or colleagues ask me how it's going, I cannot tell them enough. Don't do this if you're not ready for, I yep. mean, there's this idea. I think, honestly, the landscape has kind of just made it very sexy to own your own business and everybody should have a side hustle. But there's not really much talk about what you're talking about. Those early days of, man, you have to have a decent amount of capital to get something off the ground. That little starter fund is not going to do it for you. You have to have a really viable idea that can stand the test of several different elements and now a pandemic. I mean, it is very difficult. And I'm with you. I'm not sure that this is in fact, I know this is not for everyone. Yeah. The glorification of the successful entrepreneur in our society, to me is a big demon for a lot of folks. Yeah, because I don't wish upon my enemy, the amount of uh, blood I've left on the floor, the years of therapy, the anxiety of not being able to afford going on vacation with my friends. Yeah. And I'm one of the few successful ones, but certainly it took me a long enough time to get to the place where I was feeling confident and secure and had the success in business to actually make that stuff happen. Oh, yeah. You're not talking to anyone who's new to that idea. I'm right in the thick of it. And that hits home for me so much. It is every day waking up and finding something that keeps you going. And if you're not very clear on what you're doing and why you're doing it, you will have a very hard time making this work for you. 
No doubt. What's your personal inspiration? When you think about getting up for the day and the work that you're doing now, what inspires you? What inspires me right now is the work that I see folks that I'm working with do. The growth that I'm seeing in the folks that I'm working with for five and 10 years. I have a couple of folks, more than a handful in my organization, that I consider co-partners, co-founders with me at this point. And I usually have one co-founder in each of my ventures. I have three different ventures that I'm running right now. And each one has people in the businesses that I look at them, and Jump Crew in particular, where I started the business with one CEO, great guy. And I look around the organization right now, and I feel like I have 30 or 40 different co-founders who are real fully invested in getting to the next level and helping the folks on their team get to the next level. Kudos to you. That doesn't come by mistake. And this really is your area of expertise. So I'm excited to dive in right here. This is intentional leadership and intentional team building. And I think innovation really starts with leadership and how we as owners, as founders, as C-suites lead an organization. And I think it starts with our mentalities. Without a doubt, you got me thinking about the growth mentality, but it's more than that, Sarah. We know that. We bring into our organization a lot of folks who don't have a lot of work experience. And if they do, it's usually not in the type of organization that we're building. We're very focused on creating a community out of the organization because people generally show up for people. They don't show up for a company. And it's so hard today because if you're not sitting in the same room, if you're not in the same building, if you're not in the same city, it's a really big hurdle to jump over. And if you're not intentional about it, and if you're not investing the time and the resources in building the relationships and creating the connections, they don't happen by accident. Yeah. And I think even further than that, when you talk about wanting results from a group of people or you want people to contribute their best work, it starts with the leader or the top levels of leadership to inspire and manage those results that they're expecting. It's a culture creation of innovation that really you're giving people autonomy to really lead in that way. And I can already tell by the language that you're using, these are all partners. You've given people ownership and really you created a buy-in for them to perform well and to help customers or to help clients? Certainly modeling behavior is a really, really big part of it, which is the most giant hurdle in the remote hybrid work environment. So if you are a manager wanting to lead and you're leading by demonstrating you're managing your team's activities, then your team will just perform activities, Mm. right? If you're managing to results, if you're inspiring your folks on your team to work with you to solve problems together, to create agency autonomy for them to solve their problems on their own as opposed to managing to call time or numbers of calls, then you get results. Yeah, for sure. And I think that part of it that's caused some difficulty here is we don't know how to have relationships or operate in a business without seeing each other face to face. And 2020 has really thrust every business, every landscape to innovate. If you didn't have a strong team before everyone had to go remote due to the pandemic, then you struggled a lot during this time. I don't think this is new. I inherited a team 15 years ago and they weren't a very well-connected team to begin with, right? It's almost easier when you're building a team from scratch than if you're inheriting a team that's not working. It certainly can be faster. So to the extent that you have the opportunity to build a team from scratch at this point in time in the life cycle of where we're at and not in the same room and not in the same building, 
spending that much extra time recruiting a team that's more aligned, that'll be more connected, and then investing the time in building those connections and relationships makes it easier for you. Yeah, for sure. So tell me, for people who are listening out there who really, really are struggling in this area and they have an existing team, where can they start with trying to create a much stronger team that's built around community and that is innovative? So it certainly starts by being able to articulate and share your goals across the team. If you have that shared vision, if you have those shared goals, you're all marching towards something together. And they don't have to be that complicated. You can be invested in each other's success. And a lot of times that's more than enough. That's more than 90% of the organizations out there are really doing. There is a lot of effort and tension that goes into creating competition as opposed to cooperation and collaboration. Mm. And one plus one can equal three here. So there's a way to go about it that can accelerate achievement and can accelerate the building of community and certainly leaning into developing personal relationships regardless of what your location is, is a really big part of that. There's a chasm there between your personal and your professional life that for those of us who are in the workforce for a long time, we know that it existed. And there was this mentality that I need to compartmentalize my lives. So it would take years for someone in the workplace for really to get to know you. And I don't think you have that luxury anymore, particularly if you want to lead, if you want to lead by example. People need to know who you are as a human, as a person, what your values are and what's important to you to be able to connect to you as a human. Yeah. Right? And it goes both ways because at the end of the day, you're trying to create trust. And when you have that trust, it creates the ability for you to get more autonomy, to get more responsibility and to get to that next level faster if that's your goal. Yeah, but it requires this level of vulnerability that honestly, if I go back and, and I talk about business school, I was not taught to have that. I was not taught that this was a piece of yourself that you were supposed to ever show at work. I mean, down to make sure you never cry. And now it's like kind of flipping all of that on its head now. And the experience that we're having now, I don't think you can make it if you don't do that. Not on a team that exists already and not certainly as a leader of a team. It's very hard to rally the troops, for lack of a better word, around a cause if they don't have some type of very personal human connection with you. How have we done this wrong? I hate to say wrong, but how have we done this poorly or kind of hindered ourselves in this area? We're at a transformational moment in how folks define leadership. Right. So when you think of traditional strong leaders who have gotten the attention, you think of the great coaches for sports, you think of the iconic CEOs, you think of how they're portrayed in film and in television. They're generally folks who have a big presence in a room who can deliver that big motivational speech. And it falls really flat and on deaf ears in the remote work environment. What <laughs> what resonates much more deeply is your ability to connect with people, your ability to ask the right question at the right time, your ability not to make people defensive, mm. your ability to coach them into finding the solution as opposed to solving their problem for them. And yeah. it's a very different experience. What I've witnessed is the folks who relied on that level of charisma to motivate teams have really struggled over the last year and a half of transitioning from an in-work environment to a hybrid or remote work environment and the folks who may not have been as comfortable standing up in a room with 50 or 100 people on a Zoom or a Google Hangouts are much more comfortable asking questions and participating, whether they're newer in the organization 
or they've just been there and their voices have been somewhat silenced by folks who spoke over them. So there's a new set of folks with seats at the table. And it's been really, really beautiful because there are a whole lot of introverted leaders out there that are getting their voices heard in a louder way and a more impactful way and really stepping up and helping transform organizations to be successful in making this stuff happen. Mm, I love that. And I think that that rings so true is times, especially, I mean, in the business landscape, especially in sales, it's who's louder, who's bigger, who talks faster, who whatever. And I think we miss the opportunity to really, really highlight talent on our team because that's just simply not their personality. They never would be that way. And it definitely provides an opportunity for everyone to collaborate in a different way. I hadn't really thought about that. I think that this kind of segues to our next point in talking more about building effective remote teams. I think that's definitely a result that you get from having a remote team is you get this ability for different members of your team to contribute in a way they hadn't been able to before. But how do we go about encouraging creating a culture of contributing team members all around? Clearly, it starts at the top, right? So if your senior leaders are engaged in connecting with the individual contributors on a personal level. If they're showing up five minutes early to meetings so that one of the hazards of remote work is these meetings start on time and it leaves less window of opportunity for folks to connect. But you'll see senior leaders jumping in two and three and four or five minutes early just so they can connect with one or two folks and it's great. You see folks addressing end goals as opposed to specific actions. You see really good leaders not asking why something's not going wrong. Why is a word that makes people feel really defensive, but asking the formative questions around how and what is going on. And it makes a difference. And most importantly, and most impactfully, you'll see leaders willing to recognize and acknowledge when A, things aren't going right, and B, when they've been culpable in that. The most powerful thing I've witnessed over the last few years are leaders starting meetings with an apology. Mm. I hadn't seen it, and I'm seeing it much more frequently now, right? We're running data-driven businesses, and the data doesn't lie. But there's times when the data's not there, and you have to make a decision. You're going in a specific direction, and hey, you know, there are times when you're wrong. And historically, we've been trained that leaders are not supposed to show vulnerability. They're supposed to be invincible. They're supposed to project confidence. But in reality, we are human, and the other people see when we're wrong. And if we don't acknowledge it, right, then we're breaching a certain level of trust. And how are we going to recreate that connection when we're not willing to admit and acknowledge what's actually going on? Mm, Oh, you hit on something so deep there that is so important. And that's kind of this idea, which I've always believed this, but haven't seen it modeled very well sometimes, is that this is a reciprocal relationship. This is a relationship. If it's a good relationship, it has reciprocity in it. That I not only as a leader have to earn your trust, but you have to earn mine and we have to maintain that with each other versus this kind of hierarchical, very, oh, this person's at the top. They automatically are due your respect, trust, etc. It's this idea that, no, you have to build that and you have to earn that every day that I think really separates innovative leaders and caring leaders and respected leaders from just empirical leaders. Let me give you an example. This is something I share with every group of new hires that come into Jump Crew. We are professional marketing and sales organizations. So we're inherently outsourcing revenue channel activities for companies who are going to market with tech products, with SaaS products. So if I'm meeting with a group of 20 folks, 
16 of them are coming into the sales channel. And I share this with them. Like they come in and one of our core values is around being the best you can be, working to become the best you can be. So I share with everyone that I'm sure they're coming in under the assumption that we want them to be the best salesperson. And I went through a couple of years of this where I would embarrass people and make them raise their hands. Do you think we want you to be the best salesperson? And I'm past that at this point. I just want to share this bit of knowledge with them. We don't because people don't want to buy from the best salesperson. They don't want to work with the best salesperson. They don't want to try to feel like they're being understood by the best salesperson. They want to work with the best people and the best business people. So to the extent that we're able to provide resources to help them become better business people, more well-rounded, more aware humans, right? Then we're doing ourselves a service. We're doing our clients a service. And most importantly, we're doing the folks on our team a service. We're providing access not only to types of discussion groups that allow folks to learn from their peers, we call them circles, a culture that really leans into coaching as opposed to problem solving and providing ongoing levels of education around different parts of the business that aren't necessarily in your line of sight. We have 65 different teams that work for 65 different companies doing different levels of lead gen and and sales activities coordinated together. So we're doing weekly lunch and learns, monthly all-hands meetings where we're sharing information that may not sound or seem relevant to anything in an individual person's set of goals or KPIs for that week. But we want everyone to get exposure to the value of the intellectual capital that we're acquiring across our companies. And we feel that's really, really an important investment for us to make to help everyone level up. Yeah, for sure. I love this approach of not consultation, but really coaching. And I think it shifts the conversation from we have to have all of the answers to we're going to resource one another and help figure out a problem together. That subtle shift in providing this type of resources for your team could be huge in the culture that you're building just for simply saying, hey, we don't have all the answers. It's about asking better questions, not providing the answers. Yeah. And it's funny that you touch on this because this is actually something I've been studying over the last month is really the psychology of sales. In my particular business, I play the sales role and I did not realize how much the psychology of how I'm selling, how I show up to a sell, the things that I believe about the company or solution that I have impact how I teach that solution or present that solution to potential people looking for something to help them solve a big problem. And how does your personal experiences, what do they bring to bear on your current approach to what you're doing? And does what happened in the past, right? How is that impacting you? And is that still serving you? Because you're doing something different today than you were doing yesterday. And we are creatures of habit. So that pattern of behavior that we've developed over the year, that go-to move that worked for us, can we start to see it objectively from the outside in so that we can align our own behaviors with our own actions? Right. So to be a great coach, the first person that you have to become a great coach of is yourself. Mm. And these are some of the hardest things to do. Yeah, because you have to really have a clear idea of self, a very clear idea of what you're great at, what you're not great at, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, and be able to really stand outside of yourself sometimes and coach yourself and convict yourself and course correct yourself when you're doing things that are counterproductive for your org or for your team, or you simply make a mistake being able to honestly apologize or honestly get back up. 
And if you're willing to acknowledge where you're weak, you're then more comfortable going out and asking for help. Mm. And it certainly extends beyond the sales call. This comes back to any one of your relationships in life or at home and your family with your kids. Yeah. Oh, man, that is good. You have to first acknowledge where you're weak in order to know that you need help or be vulnerable enough to ask for it. No doubt. What other barriers do we have that keep us from innovating, that keep us from growing as a remote team? I think a humans get successful and change doesn't feel natural, Mm. right? But we certainly all know that getting outside of that comfort zone, that's where growth happens. That's where learning happens. So it's a constant fight and a struggle because you level up and something's working. The last thing you want to do is change it and get uncomfortable again. So getting comfortable feeling uncomfortable is a huge part of the battle if you're looking to level up. Getting comfortable feeling uncomfortable. I was telling my partner last week, I said, I think that I was waiting to arrive. Don't ask me where I thought I was supposed to arrive to, but I think I was waiting to arrive at some point. It really has hit me in the face that I, I never will. That you will never get comfortable if you're growing. If you're growing, it always feels uncomfortable. And I think that's a big entrepreneurial thing that is important to point out when people are thinking about going into an endeavor is that it requires that. It requires constant, almost kind of mental anguish to be uncomfortable all the time in building that muscle. It's really rare, Sarah, that I have a workday where I don't have a call that I am hesitant to make that I'm uncomfortable about. I try to make that call first. (laughs) Say it again for the people in the back that didn't get that one. (laughs) It's every single day, there's at least one call that I'm not feeling great about, that I'm uncomfortable, I'm leaning into, I'm trying to make that call first. Mm. Yes. Woo, that one's a tough one. You want to make, but it's the call you have to make. Yeah. And it's the call that nobody's going to motivate you to do. That's the other piece is no one's going to motivate you to do that. You have to intrinsically have that and you have to have the willpower and the smarts about yourself to realize when you're avoiding the hard work. So you do it first. Nope, I'm going to do this first. This is the most uncomfortable thing I have to do for the day. I'm going to do it first. When I think about that stuff, I think about something a woman said to me years ago, which just stuck with me. I was in this place in my life where I was actually really comfortable. Everything was going okay. And she leaned in and she said, without a little fire in your belly, what difference are you going to make in this world? And it really just kind of stuck with me. So I kind of wake up looking for that fire. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's totally, in my mind, I call it the fight. I'm looking for the fight for the day. Where's the fight that's going to require me to crack open a book or go back and look at something else? If I don't have that for the day, it really feels like I've just kind of gone mundanely through the day. It's a shift in mentality. But I think you're bringing that back to being on a team. I think that same fire in your belly can exist when you're on a great team and you're in line with a missional purpose that you agree with as a person. There's nothing better than really being able to know how folks on your team are going to react so you can throw a call their way or send an email their way that you know that they're going to reply all, they're going to forward to everybody. The Slack that's going to come out of that Slack channel is just going to be so in sync with what you know is going to work. That's just such a great feeling. Yeah. And some of these tools that we have, I mean, you know, some people look at the remote work environment as a negative thing. And some of these amazing tools that we have that we can utilize now to create cross-functional learning and interaction that you're not able to have in the office have really changed the game in such a good way. It's really not fair because for a large subset of people, remote work has been a tremendous 
boost to their career as an advantage. And to another subset of folks, it's been a huge detriment because they didn't have the right setup at home. They felt stuck at home. It really negatively impacted their behavior, their ability to succeed. And there didn't seem like there's been a middle ground to it. You really have to take that burden of responsibility on yourself to get into the work environment that works for you. And I think the biggest challenge has been with folks who didn't have a lot of experience and lost the ability to model the behavior of successful folks doing the same job and now are leaning into the remote work thing, but have yet to really experience what success is. And I feel that's a lot of what we're seeing and feeling in this great resignation period where turnover is so high among folks who are working remotely, not feeling that they're a part of a community. They're feeling isolated. They don't have the confidence in their skills and experience to feel like they're on track and they're jumping around quite a bit right now because they're at home and they can. They can spend some significant point of their day trying to find whatever is going to make them feel a little more comfortable. And my concern is five years from now, you're going to see a large group of folks who have made three, four, five, six jumps in jobs, but are still stuck at the same level. And they're going to try and figure out, hey, what's going on here? Why isn't there some company out there that's making it happen for me and they're failing to see that it's got to happen on the inside. And there is no company that's perfect, but at some point in time, you got to drive the focus and determination in the best opportunity that you have and stick with it long enough to get to that next level. Yeah. And like you said, even in your own personal story, that's where the most foundational learning happened for you. That's where really any idea of where you could go or any semblance of a future product or anything kind of comes from those developmental stages. You cannot skip this process. You have to get skin in the game. And it requires, like you said, to really focus and stay what feels like maybe stagnant at an org or at a great company who can really resource you and who you can learn from. So much has changed in the last 20 years, but I actually, there's this one element that I don't think has. I started as an individual contributor making cold calls in a sales channel, and I was fairly miserable for a good chunk of my first year. But I was just at a point in my career where I really felt I needed to make this job work. Mm. It wasn't until late in my second year that I really had massive transformational breakthroughs in my career. And certainly, What I would have done, I was already 28, 29 years old. What I would have done at at 24, 25, 26 would have been jumped to the next job. Mm. Woo, that one is going to sting for a couple people because they're here. They're where you are. So how do we know the difference when you're talking through this experience? And I would say you kind of had this as a fairly more mature 20 year old here. How did you differentiate between I'm in a mundane job that I'm never going to be able to grow here or learn from and I'm in a job that I simply have to stick with because I see value? Everyone has their own process for this. For me, at 23, 24, 25, I was very comfortable feeling like I was the smartest guy in the room that wasn't back at grad school, getting their MBA or getting a legal degree when my friends were. But by 28, 29, when my friends who had the focus and the discipline to get back to school and study or to stay at one job for long enough to be successful were becoming really incredibly successful. And I saw myself taking another entry-level job at 28 years old. I realized that I needed to do what they had done. Mm-hmm. I needed to sit my butt in the chair long enough with a group of people that I trusted to gain their trust so that I could get to the next level. And that takes time. Yeah. 
Yeah, you don't get to skip that. And I think that's the biggest kind of hurdle that I see for young people coming into the workforce is that we have access to all this information. Now we have access to social media, all of these different things that influence the way we think and the way we perceive situations. And if you're not on a vacation at a hot shot job with a hot shot title and a six figure salary, then you feel like you're losing. And it takes a really, really honest perspective to step outside of that and, and, and really kind of get down to what is it that you want? Where is it that you want to go? And really, like you said, to look for successful people that are already doing it and look at their pathway. Did they, did they have that at 24? No, why do you think you should? <laughs> so it's funny, you think about some of the challenges of attention relative to the social media distractions. It's never been easier to get another job interview. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Right. If it's that easy to get a job interview, I can get lots of job interviews. When it was harder to get a job interview, I was more incentivized to actually make my job work. Yep. Big change. Big change. Yep. I think it's one of those things when our, like our generational, you know, older generations will look at us and say, you guys don't have any grit anymore. You guys don't feel like you need to work for anything anymore. I think this is what they're talking about. They're talking about buy-in. You have no desire to stay in anything long enough that is mildly painful for you that everything is supposed to be enjoyable and it's really kind of messed up i think people's idea of what they think being part of an organization is and and to your point how wonderful that can be if you find an organization with leaders that you trust and a mission that you really value no doubt but you have to fight that culture of distraction yeah. you have to bring your present self you have to bring your attention you have to bring your investment and your mindfulness in other people and the other folks on your team to that effort. Yeah. And isn't as natural as it used to be. There are just so many different easy distractions right now. How do we get above the noise? How do we start? Well, I guess here's a great question. You've talked a lot about choosing the right people. So what do you universally look for in a new hire? Okay, Sarah, I don't interview a lot anymore, but I went through periods in my career where I interviewed all the time. And most recently when folks would get to interview with me, they've already interviewed with three or four people in the organization. And a lot of times the execs, they're just hoping for a good sign off here. And I think I'm a fairly easy interview. There's really only one thing I'm looking for. And it's amazing to me how many people crap out on me. The, <laughs> the question that I would ask if things are going well towards the end of an interview, it's a fairly straightforward and simple question. What would you like to be better at? And I'm only looking for one thing in the answer. I am looking for an answer that I believe is the truth. And it's amazing to me how many people will talk around this answer and not give me an honest answer. And those folks never make it back to the next interview. What's the differentiator in that answer? That's a really, really hard question for me to answer. But people aren't comfortable talking about their weaknesses. Ah, there you go. Right. But at the end of the day, if I'm bringing someone onto my team, I don't need to know what's going well. I need to know what they think isn't going well. Yeah. And if they're predisposed to not giving me an honest answer to what could be going better, then I don't really have time to have that person on my team. I don't have mm -hmm. time to work that out with them. I need them to have worked that out before. I can accept almost any answer. The best answer I ever got, I was interviewing a sales manager and he told me he had a stutter and it was for an inside sales position. And I said, wow, what do you do? How do you handle that? And he said, well, when one of my guys calls me onto a sales call, he said, I get on with the buyer and I say, listen, I'm excited to meet you, 
but I just have to tell you before we get going that I have a stutter. So I apologize in advance if it kicks in here. Please bear with me. It was an amazing, honest answer. Yeah. And beautiful. And there was a reason that he was successful at what he was doing. Yeah, right off. It's right off building that connection, that vulnerability. It's right off being honest. There's so much in that answer. And I think we missed the opportunity to be human. We're humans trying to connect with other humans. There is this idea of B2C, B2B. But at the end of the day, all of it, we're humans trying to connect with other humans on every level. Whether it's no you're doubt. selling a product, whether it's I'm looking at my CEO in the face trying to tell them something that's failed, or I'm a CEO looking at my team trying to tell them that I've made a bad decision decision or I made a poor decision that didn't give us the results we wanted. At the end of the day, it's exactly what you're asking and what you're looking for there is vulnerability, honesty, trust right off the bat. And that one word, that one sentence answer and that question that you're honing in on is capturing all of that. That's brilliant. And that's how you build community. And that's how you accelerate achievement for the folks on your team. And that's how it happens for you. Obviously, you need to be smart and obviously you need to be making good decisions. That's the obvious stuff, but the subconscious stuff, the unconscious stuff is the stuff that's going to make the difference. Yeah. David, we could go all day, but I have, but I just have one more burning question. Where is it that you resource yourself for growth? What are the avenues you take as a leader that help you continually be growing and innovating and challenging yourself? Bringing new folks into my world, into my orbit, working with different teams always challenges me because you never see the same exact situation twice. I went through a period where I was reading everything on the subject of organization development and leadership. And then when I really kind of started wanting to synthesize what went right for me over the last 15 or 20 years, I stopped it three or four years ago. And I really just wanted to think about what was working for me, what allowed me to build a string of successes. And that's really what came out in the book. Yeah. And speaking of your book, guys, David's got an amazing book out. It is called Remote Leadership. It is out now and it is one of the best starter tools. I'm not all the way done with it, but it is one of the best tools, I think, that you have to pick up in this landscape that we're in, whether you're building a team now from scratch or whether you've got one and you're trying to improve on it this is a great resource for you so i definitely want to give kudos to you on that and point people to that where can people connect with you if they're interested in, in hearing more about what you're doing and what jumpstart's doing or just get information about the solution you provide thank you sarah i'm most active on linkedin that's been my social media channel of choice you can get me on twitter you can get me on linkedin and certainly you can get the book at amazon and barnes and noble we will definitely link that in the show notes for you. I just want to give a big thank you, David. Thank you for sharing so much of your knowledge. It's been a great conversation today, and I hope that it's super impactful for our audience and someone out there listening. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you'd like to know how to get involved and share your story, head over to our website, at b2bgrowthhacks.com. Also, while you're there, subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss the latest conversations happening here on B2B Growth Hacks. This podcast is sponsored by Speakerbox Media, where we hand-build podcasts just like this one to create online communities for brands like yours. If you'd like to learn more, head over to speakerboxmedia.com.